Turn with me to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. This is on page 874 of your pew Bibles. Luke chapter 15. So I know we're we're jumping right into the middle of the book of Luke, Luke's gospel. Jesus is teaching the religious leaders about the nature of his kingdom. He's a king and he's ushering in his kingdom. But his kingdom message totally inverts what the religious leaders cherish. His kingdom is full of paradoxes. In the religious leader's kingdom, the way to flourishing is self-exaltation. In Jesus' kingdom, the way to flourishing is humility and self-sacrificial love. So in this section of Luke, Jesus is using a series of parables to show that in contrast to the religious leader's expectations, his kingdom has arrived in a subtle, non-obvious way. His kingdom grows slowly as opposed to the expectation of an immediate political conquest. And his, his kingdom is available to all, including the poor and the outcast, as opposed to the expectation of the exclusivity of the kingdom that the religious leaders had. So let's read. Let's read Luke 15. We're going to read the whole chapter. But before we do, let's pray one more time. O gracious Father, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it's given. Amen. Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in into his field to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him, embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So here's the message that Jesus is teaching in Luke 15, the simple message. Jesus loves to save sinners. Jesus loves to save sinners. It brings him, it brings his father, and it brings all heaven joy. So let's look at the text one more time. Look at verse 1. Luke tells us that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. They were drawing near to hear Jesus. Is this true of you? Is this true of us? Are outcasts and sinners drawn to us? There was something about Jesus that attracted sinners. As the perfect God-man, Jesus was unimaginably inclusive of repentant sinners and at the same time unashamedly intolerant of sin. What if our church looked like that? What if Warnell Road Baptist Church was filled with outsiders yet didn't let anyone remain in the sinful condition that they arrived in? The grace that saves is the grace that transforms. God never leaves us in the state that he found us. I think that there can be a danger in an effort to reach sinners that you drift too far towards worldliness, that you lose your gospel witness completely. I think that is a danger, but my guess is that we are not at risk there. My guess is that we sometimes 
fear the influence of the world more than we have faith in God's power to transform and save sinners. What if our church was full of people who said, I'm not afraid to spend time and speak with anyone, and I'm not afraid to tell anyone about any sin? What if our church looked like that? So again, tax collectors and sinners, the religious leaders of the time, were drawing near Excuse me, the sinners at the time, the outcasts at the time, were drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes did not like this at all. In fact, they were shocked, scandalized. Look at their comment. Look at, look at verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is more than an observation. This is an accusation. How dare he, a holy man who claims to speak for God, associate with these unclean, holy, unholy people, these outsiders. Maybe he's an outsider himself. You see, the problem is that the Pharisees totally misunderstood Jesus' mission. They totally missed it. They thought he was on a political mission, but actually he was on a rescue mission. Listen to how Jesus articulated his mission earlier in the book of Luke. Luke 5, 30 to 32. I'll read it. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What kind of doctor refuses to see patients? It's a bad doctor. No doctor at all. So Jesus responds to the religious leader's accusation with three successive parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and a lost son. Remember, Jesus is telling these parables in response to the accusation that he receives outcasts. This is how he responds to that accusation. So look at verse 3. In the parable of the lost sheep, a shepherd leaves his 99 sheep to rescue one lost sheep. Once he finds it, he rejoices. And he calls others to rejoice with him. He throws a party. And this is the way God's kingdom is. It's made up of previously lost sinners who have been restored to the fold. Heaven rejoices when sinners turn from their sins. The Pharisees should have received this message loud and clear. According to the Old Testament, they were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people. But just like the religious leaders of old, they were failing at their responsibility. They were negligent shepherds letting sheep wander off. Next, Jesus tells a parable about a lost coin. Look at verse 8. It has a similar message. There's something lost, a coin, a diligent search, and then something is found, and then great rejoicing, another party. Once again, this is the nature of God's kingdom. God's people are made up of sinners who've turned from their sins, and there's a party in heaven every time this happens. Then finally, Jesus tells his, his longer parable, and we're going to focus on that most this morning. The parable of what we call the prodigal son 
or the lost son. Look at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. I'll pause there. So to us, that seems like a pretty insignificant start to a story. There was a man who had two sons. Okay. To the Pharisees, this is very significant. They would have leaned in. I know this story. To a group of people steeped in the Old Testament scriptures from their childhood, they had heard many, many stories that start with two brothers. And in most of these stories, it's the younger brother who's the chosen brother, the one who receives God's blessing. Let, let's think back. This is a non-inclusive, non, non, um, un-all-inclusive list, but um, Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. The Pharisees would have taken great pride in their second brother status. So I think, again, I think they would have leaned in right now to listen to Jesus. And they're in for a shocking surprise. So first, and this is the outline, first we see the son's rebellion. The son's rebellion. Look at what this younger brother does. He asks for his inheritance early. This is pretty bold. Pretty bold. Like if, if you or I did that to our fathers, um, it would be a pretty bold ask. Since inheritance would have passed to him at his father's death, he's essentially wishing his father dead. It's even more offensive uh, to a Jewish person at the time. But amazingly, his father agrees. He sells his property and distributes the share of the inheritance to the younger brother. But look at what he does. Immediately, he goes, takes his money, and leaves. Apparently, he hated every minute he lived with his father. He goes to a far country and spends it all on reckless living. We don't have to be too creative to imagine what that was. Later in the parable, uh, the older brother refers to prostitutes. It was pretty, pretty wild. But then there was a famine. So the only way he could survive was to feed pigs. An unimaginable task for a Jewish person. He became so desperate, he longed to eat the slop that the pigs were eating. Here he was, desperate, lost, and unclean, both physically and ceremonially. And this is the spiritual state of everyone here this morning who's outside of Christ. Whether you recognize it or not, Apart from Christ, you are desperate, lost, and unclean. God is holy, but you are not holy. How can an unholy person have a relationship with a holy God? That's the problem that the Bible is trying to solve. How can an unholy person have a relationship with a holy God? You have rebelled against your father if you're outside of Christ. And you deserve eternal separation from him. But let's keep looking at the story. Okay, so we've seen the son's rebellion. Now we see the father's compassion. Point number two, the father's compassion. Finally, the son came to himself. He remembered his father. And he came up with a plan. He knew he'd never be received back as a son. How could he? He'd shamed his father so much. 
Deuteronomy 21 actually tells us he deserved to be stoned. The whole community was supposed to stone him for the shame and disgrace he brought upon his family. But what about becoming a hired hand? Maybe his father will show a little bit of mercy and treat him like an employee. That would be a better situation than starving, eating pig slop. And as we just, this is the most moving part of the story. I'm not sure how long it's been since the boy left. Presumably it's been a long time, enough time to squander a pretty wealthy, large inheritance. I imagine the father waking up every single day asking, Has anyone seen him? Today's the day. I know it. I'm going to go sit on the front porch and wait for him. How many of the servants thought he was crazy? There's no way that boy's coming back. He hates his father. And then one day it happened. When he was a long way off, his father saw him. I know that walk. I don't know if the son saw his father, but his father saw him. Spurgeon says, the eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. And look what he did next. He saw him and he ran to him. No self-respecting Jewish man would run. Servants run. Women run. Men don't run. But he didn't care. That's my boy. He's back. He loved him. He hugged him. He kissed him. Have you felt the embrace of your heavenly father? Have you been in that situation? He interrupted him. His son was going into his his appeal. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against... Hush! Let's have a party. This is a resurrection. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And look what happens next. He was immediately given gifts. Symbolizing his full restoration to the status as a son. Not an employee, not a hired hand, but a son. The rebellious son fully restored into the family of the father. He doesn't have to call him sir or master, but father, my father. And that is the story of every single Christian here today. As we just sang in Amazing Grace, the song Amazing Grace, we once were lost, but now we're found. And we get to call God, the God of the universe, our Father. J.I. Packer talks about what a privilege it is to call God our Father. This is what he says. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge 
of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So we've seen the son's rebellion. We've seen the father's compassion. Thirdly, we see the brother's self-righteousness. The brother's self-righteousness. Look at how he responds. The older brother. Look at how he responds. He was out working like he, like he had been doing every single day since his brother left. Maybe even working harder since he didn't have a brother to share in the effort. So he comes in from the field and he hears music. It was a party. Why? He turns to his servant and asks. Your brother's back and your father's throwing a party. The older brother was livid. He's angry. So mad, he didn't even go to the party. He hates his father's joy. He's angered by his grace. And he resents his father's love for the rebellious brother. So, look at this. For the second time in the parable, the father goes out toward one of his sons. What a gracious father. The father invites him in. Come into the party. But the brother complained, I've worked for years for you, and you've never thrown me a party. Now this disgraceful son is back, and you kill the fattened calf. That's not fair. The older brother revealed that his relationship with the father had been transactional all along. Yes, he had been with the father, but he didn't know the father. Verse 31 tells us that all that the father owned had been his all along. It was all his, but he didn't see it. His self-righteousness and pride had blinded him from the riches he had in his father all along. And that's how the parable ends. The older brother invited to come to the party, but choosing to stay outside. The older brother was farther from the father there in the field than his brother was in the far country. And the Pharisees could not have missed the point. It reminds me of Nathan. Remember Nathan the prophet in the Old Testament when he confronted David after he had sinned against Bathsheba? He tells him a little parable and then he says, you are the man. I think the Pharisees were probably there stunned and speechless. They too have been with the father, but they didn't know the father. Their rebuke of Jesus, their accusation against Jesus had revealed their self-righteous, rebellious hearts. The Pharisees may have thought they were with the father, but spiritually they were with the younger brother in the pig pen. The only thing worse than knowing you're far from God is not knowing you're far from God. And that's what the Pharisees were. They were totally deceived. While staying close to the Father outwardly, they were actually inwardly in a distant land. So, in summary, basic summary of the parable is that the younger brother represents the rebellious sinner who has squandered the good gifts of God 
and in his own heart truly wished his father dead. The older brother represents the Pharisees who, while staying close to the father outwardly, were inwardly in a distant land. And the father represents God who loves his children and rejoices at their salvation. So why did Jesus tell these parables, particularly this parable at the end? So that we may realize that his heart is the same as his father's heart. His heart is the exact same as the father's heart. In eternity past, God the Father and God the Son came up with a plan to save sinners. The Father decided to send the Son on a rescue mission to bring sinners into heaven's joy. And the Son willingly accepted his mission. Amazingly, Hebrews 12, verse 2, we know this verse, tells us that Jesus undertook this mission for the joy that was set before him. Jesus' rescue mission isn't just for our joy, although it is, praise God. It brings Jesus' joy as well. Does that sound too good to be true? Does that sound wrong? You may be sitting here thinking you are the worst sinner in this room. I have good news. The amazing truth of the gospel is that it would bring Jesus joy to rescue you and bring you home. And you know what? The worse you are, the more joy he gets. It doesn't make any sense, but it's true. Are we a church marked by joy? Repentance from sin brings joy to heaven, and it should to our church as well. We are full of repentant sinners who've turned from their sin and turned back to the Father. We should be a church full of joy. When's the last time you experienced the joy of seeing a rebellious sinner brought back to the Father? Do you believe, do you really believe that God is seeking sinners and that he'll find some and that they will turn to him? They really will. Think of how much joy that brings him and how much joy that can bring you. Jesus loves to save sinners. That's what he came to do. He came to seek and save the lost and bring them back to the joy of the Father, a heavenly party. And you are invited to the party. So where are you spiritually this morning? Do you feel like you're in the far country, desperate, lost, unclean? Or maybe you feel more like the older brother. You've been with the father and maybe even spent a lot of time around the father's people. You go to church. You have a lot of Christian friends. Maybe you're even a member of this church. Maybe this morning is the first time you've realized you don't actually know the father. The Bible tells us that though physically you may be with the Father. Spiritually, you're in the far country. And if that's you this morning, I have great news. Jesus loves 
to save sinners. And the first step to salvation is realizing that you're a sinner. Turn from your sin. Turn toward your father. He's waiting for you to come home. Jesus loves to save sinners. But how? How does he do it? How does Jesus save sinners? I think we actually see this with a couple of contrasts to the characters in the story. In contrast to the two sons, Jesus proves himself first to be the better son, secondly, to be the better brother. So first, Jesus is the better son. Unlike the younger son in the parable, Jesus obeyed his father perfectly. Instead of shaming his father and squandering his father's wealth, Jesus honored his father through his life of perfect obedience. Unlike the older son in the parable, Jesus loved his father for his father's sake, not for what he could get out of him. He is the true son of God, the one who all the other sons in the Bible point to. You remember way back in Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, Adam is presented as the first son of God. And he was given one simple command. Do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. This was a test. Would he love God for God's sake alone, trusting his, trusting his word and obeying it? Or did he trust it himself? And we know what happened. Adam failed his test. And as a result, he brought a curse on all of humanity. All people born to Adam would inherit not only Adam's curse, but also his sinful nature. The rest of the history of the Bible is a long saga of Adam's offspring failing to trust God's word and obey his commands. The nation of Israel is also presented as a son of God in the Bible. And they didn't do any better. The history of the Old Testament is a history of disobedience and rebellion. Philip highlighted that well for us last week. God's people not trusting nor obeying God's word until one day, in the fullness of time, the true and better son was born. Where Adam failed, and Israel failed, and you and I have failed, Jesus has succeeded. We are covenant breakers. He is our covenant keeper. He is our perfect substitute, the true Son of God. There are only three places in the Gospels where God the Father speaks directly. God the Father speaking audibly. And in two of those instances, the father is verbally attesting to Jesus as his beloved son. You guys remember that? First at his baptism and at the transfiguration. As if we had any doubt, God wants it to be perfectly clear that this man is finally the son we've been waiting for. And with him, he is pleased. In theology, there's a concept which is known as Jesus' active obedience. 
Jesus' active obedience. What this is referring to is his life of perfect obedience to God's law. We didn't just need someone to pay for the penalty of our sins, although we did. We also needed a substitute to obey God's law fully on our behalf. Jesus achieved positive righteousness through his life of obedience. He lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved. And by faith, we receive all of those benefits. We are treated as if we have lived our entire lives perfectly obeying God by faith in Christ. Sometimes when we read the Bible, I think, uh, we think, I can think this way, that, that I would have done better than the characters I read about. Maybe we're tempted to think, man, that's pretty messed up, pretty jacked up. I would never have done that. Maybe we're tempted to view the younger brother in the parable this way. But the Bible's crystal clear that because of our sin nature, no individual can obey the Father perfectly. We needed a substitute, and we received him in Jesus Christ. Praise God for the perfect Son of God. So Jesus is the better son. And secondly, Jesus is the better brother. Jesus is the better brother. Those of you who have read Tim Keller's The Prodigal God have seen this. This is where I I first saw this point, Jesus being the better brother. Do you have a brother, Like like a literal brother, a biological brother? I do. I have one brother. He's a great brother. Other than Jessica, he is my best friend in the entire world. I can't imagine that there are two brothers that have a closer relationship than I do with my brother. I I sincerely mean that. Um, Growing up, we did everything together. We played on the same sports teams. We shared a car in high school. We shared a cell phone in high school. Can you imagine that? We like hand off the text messages. This was back when texting was just becoming popular. We roomed together in college. We had the same major. Honestly, it was not until he got married. He got married first. It wasn't until he got married that we stopped spending all of our time together. And uh, even then, we still spent a lot of time together. Thankfully, his wife uh, was loving and gracious and appreciated that. I have complete confidence that if I'm ever in distress, if I'm ever in trouble, I could call my brother. He will drop everything and help me out. Because that's what brothers do. And you know what? I would do the exact same thing for him. Stories about brothers are really powerful. I've been watching some of these like Navy SEALs shows, and they refer to each other as brother all the time, and I love it. I I love like the brotherhood of that. It's powerful. They're powerful stories about loyalty to your brother. I've heard uh, Pastor Brian Chappell tell a story that happened in his hometown. Two brothers were playing on the sandbanks by a river. They ran up a large mound of sand. It wasn't solid, and it caused them both to sink in the sand. When the boys didn't return home for dinner, their family organized a search. They found the younger brother unconscious with his head and shoulders sticking up above the sand. So they started digging frantically. When they cleared the sand to his waist, he woke up. They said, where's your brother? He replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. 
with the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother had lifted the younger to safety. That's an older brother. That's what older brothers do. And we have that kind of brother. At the cost of his own life on the cross, Jesus, our older brother, rescued us from the pig pen of the far country. The main point, as we've said, that Jesus is teaching with these three parables, that there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. But in teaching this, he's essentially contrasting his ministry with the attitude of the Pharisees. They hate that he eats with sinners. They hate it. But he seeks sinners because that's what his father does. Like the older brother, the Pharisees are refusing to associate with sinners. And Jesus is doing the exact opposite. He understands his father's heart of compassion. His mission is a rescue mission to seek and save the lost. And the good news for us this morning is that our older brother is not a Pharisee, but Jesus. He doesn't just welcome us home. He goes to the far country. He finds us in the pig pen. He picks us up. He carries us, stinking and dirty, home to our Father. Come to the feast today. Jesus is inviting you. Are you a prodigal in the far country? Jesus wants to carry you home. Are you an older brother, proud and self-righteous, with the Father, but not knowing the Father? Come back to your Father who loves you. Are you a believer, a Christian? You've been found by Jesus. You've been brought home. You've tasted the heavenly feast. You know the joy of your Father's embrace. You too must welcome sinners, ready to invite them, eat with them, go get them. Jesus sought you. Will you seek others? Let's pray. Father, we praise you as a compassionate, merciful Father. Thank you for sending Christ, the obedient Son, the faithful older brother. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for the life we have in him. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.